0: There's a a famous, well-known statement by the uh, African church father, Tertullian, from the uh, second century. Tertullian lived in a a time of persecution against the church, particularly in that part of uh, northern Africa where he lived. And as he evaluated the situation and responded to it, uh, he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church said, you can mow us down, you can uh, unjustly put us in prison, you can oppress us in all kinds of ways, but the more you do that, uh, the blood of, the, of God's people that's spilled will become the seed for, for the church to grow, even as a result of and in response to that oppression. Uh, in saying this, he echoed the words of Jesus from John's Gospel where Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Tertullian's words also reflect the actual history of Christian missions throughout the world as as God's people have taken the good news of Jesus crucified and risen, taken that to all nations, even to the ends of the earth, uh, this is the pattern that we see. There's pushback, there's, there's oppression, there's persecution, and, let, and yet even in the face of that, God sovereignly overrules and brings forth fruit uh, in his church. It's a wonderful example of this in a book by uh, M.A. Thomas called Evangelizing India Through God's Death Squad. It's probably one of the most interesting titles of a book that I've ever heard. Uh, in this book, uh, M.A. Thomas describes... Uh, the efforts that he and many others led in, in seeking to share Christ in India, uh, heavily, heavily populated by uh, and, and controlled in large part by uh, Hindu, the Hindu religion. Uh, and the, the story in the book, the stories in the book recount uh, many who gave their lives for Christ and the spread of the gospel and how God blessed through that effort to grow the church in India. M.A. Thomas in that book says, Behind every great revival we see persecution, martyrdom, and sacrifice. As we look back at this first major persecution in the church, in the book of Acts, uh, we see that same thing. And and we asked the question this morning, uh, what can we learn as we seek to follow Jesus here and now, perhaps not facing those same things yet, what can we learn and apply to our lives today? And the first thing that we see from this passage is that persecution leads to joy through faithful witness. you probably noticed as you were listening to the the passage, there's this kind of movement in the beginning from uh, the emphasis on persecution, Saul ravaging the church. It's very kind of negative, but the passage ends on a note of joy, and there's this movement from persecution Great persecution to the end of the passage, much joy in the city of Samaria. Luke is telling us in this that Jesus, the sovereign and exalted Lord, is working through, even against, and above the increased opposition that the church faces. So that great persecution in this case leads to much joy as people receive the gospel of Jesus. and We see this in two particular ways. Uh, the context leading up to this, you know, is what we've looked at over the last several weeks, the death of Stephen, one of the first deacons. Stephen's death is the, the first martyrdom in the, the Christian church, and his death sparks this increased persecution and opposition against the church in Jerusalem, uh, such that The believers there, particularly, I believe, the uh, Hellenistic Jewish believers, scattered out from Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem because of this rise in persecution. Uh, But we see how Jesus is at work in this situation in two particular ways. We see that God sovereignly places his people exactly where he wants them. God sovereignly places us, you, exactly where. Where he wants you. This scattering of believers from Jerusalem outward uh, is no accident. This is not a plan B. This is not some sort of uh, wrench in the wheel of God's plan, if you will. This is the plan. Uh, a helpful way to see this or to remember this is Acts eight one is the fulfillment of Acts one so eight. You got eight one one eight. That put those together, you can remember that. Notice verse 1 here. Uh, Luke tells us great persecution begins against the church of Jerusalem, and then they're scattered. Notice where they go throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. This is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Acts 1 8, where he tells them, tells the disciples, the early disciples, remain here in Jerusalem until you receive power from the Holy Spirit. And when you do, you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That's Jesus' promise to them. That's the, the plan for expanding the witness to the gospel. You start here, then you're going to go out from here. And yet the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, where are they? They're in Jerusalem. They're, they're almost stuck there. They're growing there. It's expanding. And it's almost as if it took this extra pressure of persecution to push them out, uh, to go out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. But it's, it's part of the plan. It's Jesus' plan. And this ought to give us confidence in God's providence, both in the expansion of the gospel uh, and God's providence even in our own lives. Just think about it in terms of the expansion of the gospel. Despite persecution, brutal persecution, Saul ravaging, uh, it's, a, it's a cruel, violent word describing what Saul was doing against the church, dragging men and women out of their homes, uh, taking them to prison because of their faith. Despite this persecution, God works to build his church. Even as Jesus told Peter, after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus says, upon this rock, that that foundation of faith, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Indeed, the very persecution that scatters believers, intending to destroy them, is the means by which God expands and spreads the witness of his church, and eventually, in Acts at least, converts the greatest adversary, Saul, converting him on the road to Damascus. Saul's hatred and brutality is highlighted, but it's in contrast to the fruit of the gospel. Saul's ravaging. He's, he's dragging them away. He's putting them in prison. But what's happening as these things are going on and people are scattering, they're sharing good news. Wherever they go, they, they carry good news with them. Even though they're scattered, even though they're far from home, even though it's devastating, they carry good news with them wherever the Lord places them. This is God's providence, his sovereignty. And this is also the perspective that we ought to have for all of life. God places you exactly where he wants you to be. Uh, We call this the doctrine of providence, God's providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes God's works of providence as God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. It's, it's total. It, it's comprehensive. His, his rule as king over all things is completely comprehensive, including even the persecution of his church. Or the Heidelberg Catechism says it, this way in um, somewhat warmer language. that providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance... But from His fatherly hand, God has placed you exactly where He wants you. He has placed you exactly where He wants you. I think we all struggle at times to trust God where He has placed us, to trust Him with the circumstances of life—not just geography, you know, literally where He has placed us, but job, uh, relationship, health, church life, struggle with sin. Uh, concern about the nation, concern about the world. Sometimes we struggle to to trust God, to be content with, with where he has placed us and the circumstances that we face one day to the next. And it's often easy to be discontent, to simply keep our focus on wishing for something to change and miss the wonderful truth that the Lord has placed you here, wherever you are. This is part of God's Providence. We may not see all the secret reasons that he's not revealed to us, why he has us here, exactly what he wants us to do, but we can know wherever the Lord has you, he has placed you there. All things come to you, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And if you're in Jesus Christ, it means that all things come to you for your good, even the things that are incredibly hard. And so we ought to be encouraged rather than striving against whatever our circumstances are. And I don't mean you don't try to change them. That's, that's not we're not fatalist here. God's personal. He's sovereign. He has a plan and, and he uses means to carry out that plan. So I don't, I don't mean we never try to change things. But rather than discontentedly striving against what the Lord has given us or where he has placed us, perhaps the question we ought to be asking ourselves is how can I be faithful where the Lord has placed me. Here I am. God has put me here. He's placed me in these circumstances, some of which are beyond my control, uh, some are not. But whatever the case may be, how can I be faithful to the Lord in this place where he has me now? For the scattered believers in Acts 8, their faithfulness looked like bringing good news wherever the Lord had scattered them. They trusted God's plan. And where they went? They took good news with it. Uh, Our translation says in verse 2, or or verse uh, 4 rather, that those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Uh, But a better translation would be that they went about sharing good news. It's it's the word for evangelism. Uh, They were just sharing what Christ had done, who he was, and how he was at work in their life. They didn't go to school to learn how to preach. They knew Jesus, and they had that good news with them. So wherever they went... Their faithfulness looked like sharing good news. For us, it certainly involves that. You've got good news. You've got good news that's worth sharing. Where has the Lord placed you? Who can you share it with? But it also looks like faithfulness in other areas of life, trusting the Lord with where he has put you. Persecution scatters God's believer, God's people, and the believers who were scattered faithfully lived and shared good news wherever they were because God had placed them there. We also see not only how this persecution leads to great joy through their faithful witness, but we also see how rejection in Jerusalem led to a renewal in Samaria. It's as if it feels like a door is shut here and another door is open somewhere else. There's a lot we could say here about this this movement in the story Uh, But I just want to focus on one area in particular, namely how the Lord confirmed the truth and power of the gospel through Philip in this particular scene. Our scene moves, the story moves from Jerusalem to Samaria and also from Stephen and his death to Philip, one of the other seven original deacons set apart in Acts chapter 6. We're told that Philip went down to Samaria Uh, Even though Samaria is north of Jerusalem, if you're going anywhere from Jerusalem, you always go down, Uh, not just because Jerusalem is elevated on a a hill, but it's kind of a theological geography. Uh, Jerusalem is exalted because it's the place where God has placed his temple, where he chooses to dwell, uh, where he had chosen to dwell with his people. So whether you're coming from the south, the west, the east, or the north, and you're going to Jerusalem, you go up, and if you're going anywhere from Jerusalem, you go down, so Philip goes down from Jerusalem in the north into Samaria. All of that is completely bonus. It doesn't really affect the rest of what I'm about to say. But now you know why the Bible talks that way. And note what Philip does as he goes into Samaria. He's doing the same as those others who had been scattered. He began proclaiming Christ to them. And, and this is actually the word for preaching. So again, he's preaching Christ. He's preaching the gospel. Notice the response of the crowds here in verse 6. With one accord, there's this unity among the mass of Samaritans who have gathered to hear Philip. With one accord, they're paying attention. They're seeing Philip. They're listening to what Philip is saying, in part because the Lord is confirming Philip's words with miraculous signs and wonders. You've got people who are... uh, possessed by unclean spirits, and Philip is casting these unclean spirits out, and they're, they're coming out with a loud shout. It's a visible sign. They're seeing amazing things happen. You have people who are paralyzed, lame from birth, unable to walk, and Philip is healing them, and they're getting up and walking, as they had not done before. There, there are these visible, sensible signs that are accompanying uh, Philip's message of proclaiming Christ and these miracles confirm what Philip is saying. They show, they demonstrate the truthfulness of the message. And this this is often the pattern in the book of Acts, particularly when a new group of people is brought in to the one church. So it starts at Pentecost, kind of the beginning of the whole thing, and then here you have this group of Samaritans. We'll talk about kind of what they're like in a minute. But this, the Samaritans are brought in. A little bit later, you have a God-fearing Roman centurion, Cornelius. He's brought in. Then later, you have pagan Gentiles brought in. And at each of those moments when these new groups are brought into the one church, there's, there are these miraculous deeds that surround it as a way of confirming the message, the truth, the power of the gospel that's being proclaimed. It's as if God is placing his stamp on the message and the messenger saying, these are my words. This is my work. The gospel is true. This is power from God. Question is, uh, I think it's worth asking here, is this something that we ought to uh, expect today? And the answer is yes and no. Uh, yes and no. Isn't that nice for a clear answer? Should we expect this same thing today? Yes, but not in the same way. And why is that? In part, it's because of the nature of the book of Acts. This is a foundational document in the New Testament scriptures. It's, it's telling us about the foundational period of the church of Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, there's just going to be certain things that are not repeatable and things that we should not expect to be repeated once the church is established, Uh, once once all these groups, if you will, are kind of brought into the one church. So for example, we should not expect another Pentecost. That is a once-for-all redemptive event the work of Jesus Christ pouring out his spirit. Once it happens, it's a done deal, and it keeps on going, but we don't expect it to happen again in the same way. And so there's certain things in the book of Acts that are just not repeatable, not meant to be repeatable because of the nature of the book itself. But I think another maybe important thing to note here is that we need to be careful to avoid the mistake of constantly focusing on The big thing, the mountaintop experience, the flashy, the spectacular, as if that's what we need in order to have the power and the truth of the gospel confirmed in our lives or perhaps in the lives of those around us. Because when we do that, we often miss the ways that God ordinarily confirms the power of the gospel today. So, for example, how does the Lord in your life confirm, demonstrate that the gospel is true, that the grace of God in Jesus Christ is powerful? Well, maybe he heals you. It's okay to pray for that. We, we pray for people who are sick all the time, and perhaps God does that, and it's a confirming miracle, attesting to the fact that God is real, that he hears our prayers. That, that certainly can happen. But the more ordinary ways that he confirms the power and the truth of the gospel is simply through your faithfully living out the grace of God in Jesus Christ by faith, forgiving people who sin against you, patiently enduring suffering and trial, looking to God in faith in the midst of it, turning the other cheek as Jesus teaches us to do, living with integrity before the face of God humbly following after Jesus and seeking to depend upon him in all of life, those are no small miracles. The grace of God is miraculous, and yet we often long for the big showy thing to say, look, isn't God great? He moved this mountain over here. Well, perhaps the mountain that God needs to move is your unwillingness to forgive somebody. That's miraculous, and it it testifies to the power and the truth of the gospel when God is at work in your life. So don't get distracted by just going for the flashy, going for the big, going for the kind of one time event that shows that God is powerful. God's powerfully working in your life all the time. And sometimes you just need to pay attention to see it and, and display it in your life so that others can see it. I mean, I'm sure all of you know somebody whose life has been changed by the gospel. And, and you're not looking for some magnificent miracle to say there's something different. You just see their change in life. They, their foul mouth is gone. They're no longer holding on to grudges, letting anger you know, brew within them and, and establish a root of bitterness. They're different. They're different because the grace of God works miracles in our lives. The Lord confirms the power and the truth of the gospel today through your faithfully living out the grace of God in your own life. Don't miss that. Uh, if I can, I guess, just share a brief illustration. I won't say who this was. Uh, you'll, you know, whoever it is, will know. I was visiting with uh, friends in the church here and talking about past, you know, work experience and uh, you know what they did for work before retirement. And and one of them was talking about how in his position he he was a, a manager over other employees and and that he aimed to treat them with dignity to to carry out the golden rule even the things that you know the the rule that non-believers want everybody to follow treat treat others the same way you want to be treated yourself and so that was his model that was the way he treated those who were under his supervision in work and he had other bosses over him who wondered how do you get them to do what you want them to do how do you get these employees to listen to you they won't listen to me His answer was, I I treat them the way I want to be treated myself. That's just a simple application of living out faith in Jesus Christ and seeking to obey Jesus in the workplace. God confirms the power of his gospel through simple acts of obedience just like that, primarily through the miracle of grace at work in your life. Is your life showing the truth and power of the grace of Jesus now? In this part of Acts, not only do we see this movement from persecution to joy, from rejection in Jerusalem to spiritual renewal in Samaria, but we see what is perhaps the most significant event to confirm the truth of the gospel as the Samaritans themselves are brought into the people of God, showing that there is hope for the outcast, that there is good news for the outcast. Uh, the, mention, the mere mention of Samaria and the fact that there were people hearing and rejoicing and then later were told that they received the good news. They received the Holy Spirit and they're baptized and brought into the church. The fact that this is happening in Samaria uh, is, as they say, a big deal. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the Samaritans were very much outcasts. Uh, in terms of the way the Jews viewed them in the first century. They were theological outcasts. They had, uh, they were, the the Samaritans were um, part of what became the northern kingdom in the Old Testament. You had Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and there's this division after Solomon dies between the north and the south. And uh, the Samaritans, these, these northerners, Uh, They kind of take on a theological flavor of their own. So, for example, they only accept the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus through Deuteronomy, nothing else, no prophets, no Psalms, uh, none of that stuff. They only take the first five books of the Old Testament as being kind of their Bible, so to speak. They were theological outcasts in that they were known for idolatry. The northern kingdom, if you read through the Old Testament, uh, there's, no, there's no good king ever in the, old, in, in the northern kingdom. They're all bad. And part of the reason they're bad is because they set up these shrines for idolatry. And so the worship is corrupted in Samaria. They even set up a different temple on a different mountain. And that's a big deal because you're not supposed to do that. They, they take the surrounding religions and beliefs and they kind of mold them in, meld them in with their own beliefs. So there's this syncretism in their theological outlook. So from the Jews' perspective, Jerusalem, Judea, looking at the Samaritans, these guys are heretics. They're outcasts. They don't believe the same things. Their expectations of the Messiah are different. The way they worship is different. It's all wrong. So that by the time Jesus comes, uh, John tells us in his gospel that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Even the story about Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well uh, is, would have been odd because normally Jews, if they were going from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, they go around uh, Samaria. they cross over the river, go up, and then come back over the river. So they didn't even have to go through the region. They hated them that much. The worst slur that the Pharisees gave against Jesus was to call him a Samaritan. They hated the Samaritans. Uh, They were outcast theologically, they're also outcast ethnically. When the, just to give you a little background, when the Assyrians came in around 700s BC and they uh, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and they send a bunch of uh, the ten tribes in the north into exile, many of the ones who stayed behind end up intermarrying with all the foreigners who come into the northern kingdom. The result? Samaritans. So they're kind of ethnically half-Jewish, half-something else, and the Jews did not look highly upon that. All that to say, they were outcast. So the fact that the good news comes to Samaria and that people are paying attention to it, and that they're hearing that the Messiah has come, that he has died, that he has risen, and that there is hope for anyone who will believe in him, they receive this with much joy, and they are brought in to the people of God because the good news is for the outcast. It's not just for the people who think they live in the inner circle And maybe look down on those who are outside. It's not just for the people who look like me, who think like me, who act like me, who live in the same strata as I do. The gospel is for the outcast. Because at the end of the day, we're all outcasts apart from Jesus. We've all sinned and disqualified ourselves from belonging to God and to his people by virtue of our sinfulness. We've all cast ourselves out and stand rightly under the condemnation of God's law. We're all outcasts apart from Christ. But the good news is that in Jesus, he brings the outcast in. He, he brings the prodigals home and he brings them home rejoicing. He goes after the one lost sheep and he throws him over his shoulder and comes home singing with joy because he has brought back the one who was lost. The good news is for the outcast. And the the bringing in of the Samaritans here is evidence of that. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, reminding us of our status outside of Christ, you were once strangers. You were once outside of the people of God without his promises and therefore without hope. But in Jesus Christ, he has brought you near. Here the Lord brings the Samaritans near. He brings them into the one church to show us, to remind us that the gospel is for the outcast. And so the question is for us, have we recognized that we are outcasts because of our sin, that we don't belong in ourselves, that we need Jesus to bring us in? The good news is if you've recognized that, then Jesus has done everything necessary to bring you in. There remains nothing on your checklist to do except to receive the gift that Christ has secured for us in his living, his dying, and his rising again from the dead. It is all a gift of grace. God's grace is at work. Through persecution to bring much joy as God's people scatter and wherever he places you, be faithful. Be faithful. Share the good news and see how people receive it with joy. God's grace is at work. That even though there's rejection in some places, there is renewal in others as we proclaim Christ and and add to the proclamation with a demonstration of the power of God's grace in our own lives, seeking to live for him faithfully. And may we take hope and encouragement in the fact that the good news is for the outcast. He's the father who welcomes the prodigal home, who rejoices, brings out the fattened calf, places the ring and the robe and the sandals upon the feet of the one who has left and come back. The good news is for the outcast because Jesus was cast out for us that we might be brought in through faith in his name. May we find much rejoicing in him. Would you pray with me?